Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. My name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review. On today's podcast, we're looking at predictions for 2018. We're recording this podcast in a very cold uh, first week of January. And I've been joined today by six um, leading lights in the ITAM world who are going to share their insights for 2018. Uh, first of all, I have Kylie Fowler of ITAM Intelligence. And my understanding, hopefully you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Kylie, that ITAM Intelligence does consulting, advising and coaching to people in the ITAM space. And you also run the BCS group. Um which has its next meeting on the 16th of January, if I'm, if I'm right. Yes, that's right. Well done, Martin. It's uh, great to be here for inviting me. My, my pleasure. And I understand as well that um, Astute Licensing are speaking at your next event. And um, Chris uh, from Astute was the winner of the Innovation of the Year uh, for the ITAM Review Excellence Awards back in November. So if you want to know what all the fuss is about, about what he does, it's a great opportunity to go and find out what he does on the 16th of January. Hopefully, we'll get the podcast out before then. Yeah. Uh, my next guest is Julian Lester, um, former winner of the Professional of the Year and Project of the Year for the Excellence Awards, and now uh, very kindly sits on our judging panel. Works for Sinjaga, who, uh, to my knowledge, do license consulting and negotiation. Is that right, Julian? Yep, that's correct, Martin. Cool. Um, and next is the Sam Beast, David Foxen, former analyst at the iChan Review, now working as at a as a uh, global software asset manager at a should we just say a large corporate, David? Yeah, we do a bit of everything. <laughs> and congratulations on your new arrival um, to the new Sam Beast in the world. Yeah, thank you very much. Give him uh, 18 years or so, and he'll uh, definitely join the, uh, the the family trait of being a, a Sam professional and enthusiast, hopefully, or a professional footballer. We'll see. Yeah, one of the two. Uh, my next guest is Matt Fisher. Uh, call, probably call you a veteran as well, Matt, a senior VP of product strategy at Snow Software. And to my understanding of the uh, industry jungle drums, you've just hit your number. So. I imagine that at the moment you don't, don't give a monkeys about Sam. You're just more concerned about your snow gear and whether it's snowboard or ski equipment. Is that right? Always care passionately about uh, Sam Martin. Always care <laughs> passionately. But uh, very much looking forward to taking 700 people skiing next week. Yeah. Cool. And imagine that to keep things on brand, uh, you'd have to be snowboarding, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, except for I'm not very good on a snowboard and I don't want to face plant, so I'll stick to my skis. Okay, so c congratulations for hitting the number. Awesome achievement and, and good luck skiing. Um, I always think these events would always benefit from independent media coverage, you know, just dropping that. <laughs> dropping that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Noted for future reference, yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll drop the plug every year and one day you'll pick it up. <laughs> um, and my final guest is the James Bond of Warrington, uh, Rory Canavan, ITAM professional Hello, all. Uh, from, from Sam Charter, who specialised in consulting and services in the ITAM space, and especially when it comes to process, uh, Rory is Mr. Process. Is that a good description of Sam Charter? I'll, I'll take that. Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Okay. 
So looking forward to 2018, we've got a number of topics and uh, I'd love to pick your brains. If we go first to uh, the topic of cloud consumption, so we've recently compiled a um, most read uh, articles of 2017. And up there were, were a lot of articles around cloud consumption and managing cloud. Um, Matt, I'm going to come to you first. Um, You've you made a point about um, end user organizations and ISVs are both losing out in the managing cloud. What's your views there in terms of cloud consumption for 2018? Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting situation. And certainly within our own customer base, we're seeing more and more CIOs really struggling to understand and justify the bills that are coming in on a monthly or quarterly basis from their cloud service providers. Um, as you as you know, those bills are getting bigger and bigger, and therefore they're starting to get into being noticed by the board. The board is asking the CIO to explain, and the CIO is coming up you know, empty on a lot of occasions. So on the one hand, we think that customers need much better visibility of the cloud consumption uh, from, a, from a vendor's point of view, in terms of understanding what they're using, why it was used, and why the costs are what they are. Now, at the same time, the software vendors, I believe, also have a problem in that when their software is deployed in the cloud by end users, it's nigh on impossible today for those vendors to track the usage of that software. So as we think about the newer licensing models that are coming out, um, the vendors are not really in a position to take advantage of those licensing schemes because they can't track the usage. It's not like going and doing an old uh, on-premise audit. You know, you know, some of us on this call are old enough to remember the, the, the walk-around audits, let alone the technological versions that we have these days. But most vendors don't, don't um, expand those audits into cloud environments. And therefore, as the cloud usage uh, increases, the vendors stand out or stand to lose money. And that perhaps sounds like a great deal for the customer, but I'm, I'm here to argue it's probably a bad thing for the customer because when vendors start losing out uh, revenues in one area of their business, they will try to recoup those re uh, revenues in other areas. So I think it will be interesting to see whether in 2018 we can find a way of getting both the customer and the vendor a fair deal. So would you, what do you say to the argument that the Samsung vendors like Snow are a little bit late to the party when it comes to managing um, cloud, um, you can't just slap another agent on these cloud environments. You need, you've, I know you guys at Snow and other vendors have put a lot of effort into tapping into APIs and such. Uh, you're almost starting again, aren't you? Are you a little bit late to the party? Yeah, I think you have to define late to the party. At the moment, although cloud is, is very fashionable and it's definitely where the growth is, the fact is about three quarters of IT or software spend is still on premise. So really where the money is at today is very well catered for by Snow and some of the other vendors out there. But increasingly, we have to um, look at the cloud. And as you've just said there, the, the secret source there is not just to look at it from a, an agent point of view sat on an end user device, but to actually understand what's happening at the vendor's end or the service provider's end as well. And that's very much the Snow strategy for 2018 is to, to come at it from two different angles, consumption from the, the user but also the entitlement and the billing from the, the vendor. And that's something you will definitely see from us coming through this year. Kylie, if I could come to you, uh, you've mentioned cloud cost control as, as a prediction for 2018. What's your thoughts there? 
So I totally uh, agree with Matt and where he's coming from that CIOs are going to become more and more concerned about skyrocketing cloud costs. We were all sold cloud as a panacea, but I think what a lot of companies failed to take into account was the fact that they used to sweat their on-premise assets. They would capitalise something over three or five years, but then they might still be using it 10 years later. And effectively, seven to five to seven years of that 10-year lifespan was, was free. Well, these days, you're not going to get five years free. Nothing's free in the cloud. Every single bit of memory or, or uh, storage that you're using, you're paying for. Uh, so I think actually, I thought for a long time that cloud has not been missold, but the cost basis on which uh, business cases have been built is very inaccurate because they never included that 10-year use span. They just included the three to five years depreciation of the physical equipment or the software that was purchased. So that's where I think the root cause of the problem is. And, and if we think about um, how we manage other elements of OPEX in an organisation, I mean, a massive proportion of costs for most companies is salaries and when there's an economic downturn they need to cut their overall payroll they make people redundant it is going to be required to pinpoint where they can make savings in their cloud costs and i think at the moment nobody has the tools to do that which is interesting so of course we've got snow on the call and jillian also is was is very interested in um thinking about tooling as well. And I think tooling is a really important foundation, but cloud, true cloud cost control is only going to come as we start linking costs back to the business so that the business can make decisions about what they're using so that they can say, you know what, it's not worth the money we're paying. Let's get rid of that service. Um, and that's going to be a really interesting technological and service management challenge. I think Kylie, it's, it's Gillian here. Um, I think that's a really good point because actually I think cloud is really just shining a spotlight on things that organisations and IT functions in particular haven't done particularly well in the past, which is cost control. So it's, you know, we've been through an era of we run a load of projects and so projects create some money and then they create some on run costs and, you know, who pays for what? And there's always this argument. So it's, it, it's very it's a very difficult, complicated picture to get to the bottom of who's spending what, why and where. I think cloud just makes it much more visible because every month the bill comes in and it's different. I think from my point of view, you know, if you take Amazon as an example, they provide you with a cost explorer. It's not very lovely. I don't imagine that everybody wants to use it, which is why there's a whole marketplace of people out there to help you with cost control. Who's stuff that just makes that look better and is easier to manage. And when I say I feel that the, the software asset management kind of pure breed vendors um, are saying, oh, we do stuff in the cloud. I don't see it in the same way as I see stuff that's being offered if you go to an Amazon event and see the things that are there. It's it's not different. It's like you're starting from a different place. And from my point of view, if you want to do cloud cost control, just about the infrastructure as a service builds, it's not it's probably not from at this moment in time going to be your software asset management vendor or your ITAM vendor that's going to be the one that's going to have the right answer for you. Um, just looking at the market and what I can see that's happening out there at the minute. And I think going on to a, another point that Kylie's going to come to later, it's about governance. If you didn't govern your on-premise assets, why would you govern your cloud assets any better? And I think that's really what, what we're seeing today. 
I guess no great surprise. Sorry to cut in. It's Matt from Snow. No great surprise that I'm going to disagree with you on one point you said there, Gillian, which is that you, it's not the Sam vendors uh, that are going to provide the answer. I think one of the issues with the current batch of cloud cost management or cloud spend management solutions that are out there is that a lot of them are hooking into the financial systems and therefore they're giving you an understanding of cost but they're not really giving you an understanding of consumption and obviously cost is cost it's very important but actually justifying that cost through understanding consumption is also vital and a lot of the CSM or CEM uh, solutions really can't do that at the moment. If you look at some of the better, and I won't mention names, SAM and ITAM platforms, however, they're very much built around understanding consumption. What they're lacking typically is that uh, expense management side. But I would argue it's easier for the SAM uh, platforms to add the expense management capability than it will be for the spend management platforms to understand the consumption. But Amazon, as an example, drives its cost model from consumption. So you are charged on what you use. So the two things are rather inextricably linked to, to my mind. So unless we're talking yeah. at cost purposes on consumption, it's like if you're buying an E3 um, system and you're consuming it in this way, that's how you're going to be billed. And that's what will come out through the cost system. And again, I just go back to the governance point. The governance point is unless you as a company have set up tags and inventoried your cloud um, setup appropriately, making sure you know who's turning it on, got all your controls in place, then, you know, that data set that you arguably would need as a SAM vendor is going to be missing anyway. It doesn't matter whether you're a consumption, cloud consumption, as you're calling them, management tool yeah. or a SAM vendor. If the, if the customer has not done the basic housekeeping um, work right up front, neither party will be successful. Yeah, and I, and I kind of feel like you just set me up perfectly there because that tagging is absolutely something that we deliver as part of our solution. And we totally agree that without the tagging, you can't do the cost allocation and other, other things like that. But I think just, just quickly on Amazon, it sounds like you're, you're from more, more familiar with their uh, reporting options than I am. But most organizations out there aren't doing a single cloud or you know a, a single platform uh, strategy. Most are using a multi-platform strategy and most, most have multiple contracts with those uh, different providers. So I think it becomes exponentially more difficult to get a proper view of uh, your cloud investments when you're dealing with you know, seven or 10 different contracts and four or five different platforms, rather than just having to look at one portal. No, but I think I think Amazon, if that's if you want to do it in the native portal, if you want to buy a tool that covers multiple portals, they are available. I'm not here to sell them. I'm just here to say, I think for some people sat there with an asset tool, if the answers they're not getting around cloud cost management are effective and convincing, they will go away and look at these other ones because they are there and they have staff. And it's very easy if you're absorbed into, you know, Microsoft Cloud Promotion or your Amazon customer or your Google customer for them to promote, you know, their, their marketplace vendors to you and it's very easy to for your customer base to be influenced and um, attracted to other products that happen to be out there okay M moving on um, I was I was listening to um, I think it was a YouTube video from Amazon's uh, conference back in um, November I forget what it's called but I think it's about 45,000 people there at Amazon's conference and they were talking about their marketplace and they had, I think they had 4,000 apps available in their marketplace that were click to use. So 
um, you didn't have you just if you wanted to use an ERP application, you just had to click on the icon and it automatically configured and delivered that device to, um, uh, application to a virtual machine. I think there's a whole new world of that sort of automation coming, and I think we it, it's definitely a theme for 2018, um, and it's something we need to tap into as as asset managers. You, tooling process or whatever it is it's definitely something that's going to be on the more on our radar for 2018 Mo moving on to the next subject um david i'd like to come to you next um i've seen you tweeting and blogging about getting more involved in the project management and project delivery process so actually working with the people that are building things and getting sam involved in that do you care to explore more on your prediction for 2018 around that yeah, sure. So um, this has kind of come out of um, experience here, really, in building a SAM function that has never really been involved in projects of any kind of form. And it, it kind of ended up being a case of that we were the last to know. IT was, you know, perhaps the last to know with certain things as well. And it kind of, uh, Rory kindly posted a blog that I did about it. And it's, you kind of feel like you're left holding a baby, that you, you don't know what they like to eat, you don't know what they like to drink, you don't know when to change them you've been told that you've got to look after it and manage it and it seems a bit backwards um, so we've implemented um, a new PMO and SAM process here whereby for any kind of project that touches software, uh, software as a service, cloud service etc then it has to come through the SAM team so that we understand what kind of uh, licenses that we might need to buy, um, who's paying for it, what kind of terms we're going to look at, has it been approved by legal and so that when the project goes through the completion process and that the licenses are then purchased we actually have the process already in place to manage the compliance and the risks and the usage from day one rather than being given a baby and then trying to figure out how on earth to look after it and i think that there's going to be a lot more between sam and um, you know we always talk about key stakeholders in hr and legal and the service management team and stuff but, but you know there's not a lot out there in terms of the project management office and then um, off the back of the blog that, like I said, Rory kindly published, I had a lot of messages on LinkedIn and some phone calls of people asking how we've done that because they feel like they're in the same boat as well, whereas they're just being given, uh, you know, oh, here's a license agreement that the CTO has signed. No, it hasn't gone through the, the correct processes, but, you know, we need to do it quickly. You need to go manage the licenses. And, you know, you're left with an application that, you know, monitors CO2 emissions from catalyst converters that's licensed on per cubic outputs or whatever, and it's, You've got no heads up, but they're expecting to manage it from that time and know everything about it. So if Sam gets involved early on in that project, then you can build your own knowledge, the right processes, policies, governance, education pieces, so that when that project goes live, you're also live and you're good to go and you're ready to manage the, the software asset. So, I mean, I think Rory, I'm, I'm not sure if you've got a uh, kind of like a template process being the, uh, the process guru around Sam and the PMO office, and this, is this something that you've seen when you've been doing your work? It, it's interesting that you mention it, David, because um, I, I had a conversation with the prospective client about this this very topic uh, just before Christmas, um, and they they had little to no engagement with the the PMO office, and the the suggestion I came back with them was um, these these projects and these programs typically they run a uh, typically, they run some sort of POC engagement with the software vendors that they're looking to to sort of engage with as part of this technology stack they're looking to roll through. That would be the appropriate point then to actually leap in and say, right, guys, let's do the SAM due diligence or the IT due diligence as well, because it may well be that a, a, a piece of software is being brought in 
that hasn't met information security approval or service yeah. management or network approval as well. So um, it's it's not, I don't think it's exclusively a SAM issue. I suspect all elements of IT are actually struggling with this, but if you can, I think it's one of those things, the sooner you get hold of it, the better. So, so how is yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. So from our point of view now, we, um, as part of the PMO office, um, the, there's a checklist now on who you've spoken to at the mandate form and the mandate is when it's a conception of an idea. You know yep. that you need to implement a new technology or new software, but you need to get the approval on the option. So, for example, you have to go out to five or three vendors for, for tender for RFPs. It needs to be checked off by security. It needs to be checked off by legal from the terms and conditions. It needs to be checked off by SAM from uh, any licensing implications. And then it also needs to be checked off by finance as well because, you know, a lot of the cases, some of these projects, year one spend is actually out of the project budget. But then year two, three spend of the maintenance or the SAS or whatever, it then comes out of the IT spend. So it's having all those kind of processes and stuff in place first. But we've now got to the stage where we're really early on in the function. Um, really early on in the process but i kind of get the impression from the feedback from uh, what we've been speaking about that that's not that doesn't seem to be common practice when it kind of really should be david you're absolutely right and i think part of the problem is that historically sam has been seen as as a, a doing function so and i think our next topic on the list is risk and governance and and, and this is absolutely an area um where sam needs to shift away from doing to governing and for me, the three key governance points or control points, I should say, that a software asset manager should be involved in is at the very early stages of, of project and program initiation. They need to be involved in enterprise, uh, sorry, enterprise and solutions architecture approval forums so that they have sight of actual solutions and can flag up any risks or any work that needs to be done to enable us to manage that solution. And then finally, we also need to be at change management. The only one of those three controls that I regularly see SAM people attending the meeting is a change management meeting. And that's probably the least important of it. Sure, a change management meeting will pick up the fact that Sunbright Spark has, has virtualized, has, has moved into the cloud or into you know, virtualization and tripled the licensing. But actually, the biggest problems, the really nasty problems, are caused much, much earlier up the up the planning and and design stage of of any solution and that's where sam needs to insert itself and i think the challenge is that software asset managers need to be really assertive to achieve that it's not obvious to to portfolio managers it's not obvious to enterprise architects and solution architects why sam needs to be involved and it can be a really challenging conversation for software asset managers to justify that need to be involved at those very early stages yeah, I think massively, to, to and um, calling them. I'm oh, sorry. No, go on, David. You finish, and I'll I'll add something after. No, I was just going to say that um, I totally agree that the whole justifying why Sam needs to be involved, especially when you're building a new function, is is kind of a challenge because it's you know we've never had this before. You know, we we've never had to you know tell you someone in advance that we're going to have X Y Z spend on software licenses. Um, and you, you mentioned in there about bright sparks, you know, they've gone through um, and made a change without informing people. I think, Kylie, that's the polite term to use in, in bright sparks. Um, there's been a few uh, yeah, other kind of choice words for people that do stuff that triggers licensing implications without telling Sam. Uh, 
but bright spark i shall use and um, yeah use it as the fluffy version <laughs> don't don't but, mince words david go on <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's a glimmer of hope here on the horizon um if i can just use some anecdotal evidence just before christmas i did a week-long tour across the us talking to some of our customers admit they're to larger customers, perhaps slightly more mature in their outlooks. But in each one that I went to, there was an average of seven or eight people in the meeting. Um, typically, infrastructure was represented, security was represented, end user computing was represented, and of course, there were SAM professionals there as well. And I took that as a really positive sign that actually there are customers and there are companies out there that are getting the importance of the SAM function. But I think sometimes we can be our, our own worst enemies in that we keep banging the drum for SAM and SAM as we know it. And the rest of the organization doesn't have the same view of software asset management that perhaps we do. And I think one of the things I saw within customers where the SAM function is becoming more and more integrated into the wider IT operations function is where that they're able to talk the language of their colleagues rather than forcing their colleagues to talk the language of SAM. And I think that's something that's going to be very important to us as we go through 2018 and beyond. That's a that's a really cogent point, Matt. And I think not least, I'm, I'm just going to sort of jump on the process bandwagon for a second for a change and just mention there the, the rewrite of ISO 19770, because I think that's that could be a real vehicle to act as a, as a communications bridge between the business and, and IT asset management then as well. If done properly, of course. Could you give a quick summary for those that are not aware, Rory? On the, there's a new version out. But what, what's what? What are the changes? What 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 do people need to know about? Um, the the most significant changes would be that it, it the the rewrite has actually gone down the formal management system standard or management system standard approach. So if you've done any um, implementations or studying around, say, 27,001 for information security or um, um, ISO 20,000 for service management or um, 22301 for business continuity management, it it sets up that management framework by which, whereas in the previous standard, you had potentially 27 processes to follow to a certain degree of maturity to get us to a certain level. That has, that has gone the way of the rewrite now. Um, essentially, you set up, you define what your goals are for your management system. You set up a scope so you understand what you're throwing your arms around from an ITAM perspective, and you then craft the processes. So all of a sudden, it's not a case of sort of adopting a document and saying we're going to follow this um, with blinkers on and just you know hope for the best. Um, you've actually got to think about what it is you're doing and and looking to mould ITAM to your business requirements, which is kind of where I came in at, at sort of the end of Matt's, Matt's comment there. So before we move on, David, could I just ask you, how has that change gone down with your project managers and people building stuff, first of all, and how did you get that in in the first place? So was it a, you know, you can't just get everyone to change their habits overnight. How did you actually make that change happen? No, of course. So initially, it was a case of um, I'm I'm in the kind of unique position whereby the IT function here is uh, it was recently um, centralised. We had a decentralised IT function, so things like enterprise architecture. The, you know, the, the head of enterprise architecture joined at the same sort of time as me and had the same output, uh, and we kind of all got the key stakeholders together and said, look 
we can't change the past, but we most certainly can change the future. He is who needs to be involved with all of the new projects that come in. He is the strategy, the frameworks and the processes and the policies for any new project that involves anything to do with IT. Uh, we need to make sure that it follows the right route. And we've got a whole um, project management office um, and the head of the project management office is in my uh, extended team. Uh, so it was basically we, we had a number of meetings where we got all the key stakeholders involved and said, okay, what is the best case scenario? What is the best case process, the best practice, however you want to um, phrase it, so that we make sure that we're capturing all this information, that we're aware of it, that we're involved. Um, and once we agreed a process, it went through various iterations, the CIO got involved, um, and then it was a case of um, making the wider business aware, people outside of IT aware that they now need to follow this process. Um, and that was, we did that via um, classic, you know, webinars, um, drop-in centers, workshops, etc. Um, and you know what, actually, to be fair, the project managers are an awful lot happy because we've taken some of the, um, the, the effort, the legwork off of them. So historically, project managers would have sort of gone and find and found out about the licensing model or how it fits in with an organization. But now they've got dedicated experts to do that. So they're actually project managing rather than, um, like Kylie said, about actually doing, they're governing. Um, and we're providing our inputs on it. And projects are going through a hell of a lot quicker. They're far more accurate. Um, you know, we're making sure that the right technology is going in at the right price with the right licensing models. Um, and, you know, we've had some really positive feedback from the end users that have gone through this new process to say, yeah, do you know what? It feels a lot more together, uh, a lot more uh, collaborative. And I feel like my project's in a lot better place now because we've got dedicated experts working on it. I think it's a good sign of maturity. When the project managers are coming to you, not because of bureaucracy or a form they've got to fill in, but because they know they're going to get a better project. I think that's the sign of a good a good ITAM practice when they're, they're coming to you because they know they're going to dodge a bullet in terms of risk and they're potentially save money because you know more about licensing than they do. I think it's a really good watermark. Um, Kylie, can we come back to your point around doing versus governing? What, what's an example of that? Could you give another example of what, what you mean by moving from doing to governing? I think historically a lot of SAM organisations have been very focused on data management, information, producing information, reports, compliance positions, lots of analysis. And that stuff is important because you need that stuff to make decisions. But it's a very backwards looking process. It means that software asset managers historically have been fantastic at flagging up the issues, flagging up the, the quagmire that the company's managed to get itself into unwittingly, and they're constantly the bearer of bad news. And the own, but the only way to actually be, to really stop problems before they become embedded within an organisation is to shift the headspace away from doing, oh, I've got to run this report, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, to actually thinking about controls that need to be put in place in order to make sure that what everybody else is doing is done correctly, done appropriately, and meets the organization's goals. And I think it's what Rory was saying about 19770 being written as a true management system is a really, really important point. I was reading, uh, I was doing a bit of research around what's the difference between a process and a management system, because of course ITIL sees service asset and configuration management as a process. 
it's something that has a trigger, you turn a few handles, it produces something at the end. And that's that's the doing, isn't it? That's the, okay, we'll, we'll, we've, we've got a trigger, we've got a license renewal, we'll turn a few handles, we'll produce a compliance position at the end, then we'll, we'll renew the subscription or whatever. That's, that is a process. But SAM is a management system. And the difference is uh, the process is, say, the frying of the egg. So, so you crack your egg, you put it in the pan, you turn it over if you, if you don't want your sunny side up, etc. You put it on a bit of toast, etc. A management system is the entire experience of going to the greasy spoon to get your full English in the morning. That's the difference between the two. And it's only, it's only really uh, something that we're beginning to realise now that Sam is a management system. It's the entire greasy spoon experience. It's not simply the process of frying the egg. But that's, it's a really difficult concept to explain to people because the impact of that is you need to ask an awful lot of people whose priority is not software asset management to impose controls, to change the way they do things and be governed. ISO, standards, ISO standards as described by Greasy Spoon. We've, we've reached new yeah. heights in our sophistication, haven't we? I think it's a fantastic example. The analogy is information security. Whenever I go into an organisation, I look at how they do their information security, which is also a management system. It's ISO 27000. Uh, the way Rory described 19770 is, you know, people, uh, organisations defining their own, their own scope, their own strategy, uh, what it is they need to do to do SAM. That's what information security people have been following for the last, I don't know how many years, five, ten years, when they implement 27K, ISO 27000. So if you think about what information security is doing in your organisation and how they're governing, start emulating some of that for SAM would be my message. Learn from information security. So a couple of themes, uh, perennial themes are auditing and in particular indirect access. Indirect access was a major topic for 2017 as um, SAP sued one of their customers for the first time and we did a lot of coverage of SAP in particular around indirect access last year and I'm sure it's going to be a recurring theme for this year. But if we could cover auditing first of all, um, Matt, can we come to you, your views on the auditing um, arena and, and how that might be changing for 2018? Yeah, I fear they might be my extremely unpopular views both with the panel and the audience in general. But I, I'm here to say that I don't think we're going to see much, if any, reduction in the level of software audits in 2018. Uh, at the moment, we saw a tiny reduction in them uh, last year, but they're still more or less at an all-time high. And I don't see that changing in 2018. I think, however, what is going to change is the real rationale for why vendors use software audits. I think increasingly uh, we're seeing the demise of the software audit to drive compliance revenues. Um, and that's partly because no vendor really wants to show compliance revenues on their, their balance sheet. It's not actually a nice revenue to have. Um, but secondly, because a lot of the vendors out there are moving their businesses to the cloud. And right now, customer adoption is slower than they would like. And I believe that we will see software audits being used to strong or strong arm, I should say, uh, customers into moving towards the cloud. 
Uh, we're already seeing some vendors doing this. I think more will join the fray in 2018. And I think it's incumbent on the SAM professionals and the vendors like Snow to making sure that the organizations that are receiving those audits know what's in store for them, know what the end uh, goal of the vendor is, and know how to turn those audits to their advantage and hopefully get a good deal as and when it's right to move to the cloud. Matt, you are so correct. That is so spot on. And, you know, I've been seeing this for three, four, five years with clients that I work with who tend to be larger clients uh, sitting on old legacy licenses and versions and they know they need to upgrade the the software vendor knows they need to upgrade and everybody is effectively using the threat of an audit as a lever both internally into the company and that's being twisted coming so 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 the vendor will the vendor and the IT organization know they need to drive change the thread of the audit becomes the lever through which the IT organisation justifies implementing and driving that change up through to the business and the board. And I've been involved in several negotiations where that's been the case. And, and I think it's going to be, it's interesting that you say that's going to be going to spread. So it may be, may be that more and more reluctant organisations get tackled in the same way. But I also wonder to what extent concerns around cloud costs are going to mean that companies push back a lot more against that effort to strong arm them into the cloud. I think you, that last point is so important because you're right, the cloud vendors make it look so attractive to move the cloud. I mean, funnily enough, it's what sales and marketing do, right? But increasingly organizations that have moved some of their systems and apps applications to the cloud are beginning to see that those costs or at least those first year costs are only really the tip of the iceberg and suddenly they're having this massive ongoing expense they hadn't really budgeted for they're reluctant to have their fingers burned twice and so i think organizations are getting better about scrutinizing cloud costs and i think that will force vendors to be a bit more transparent or it will create market opportunity for the likes of you and me to bring solutions to market or services to market that offer that transparency so i, I totally agree that um, organizations will get better at pushing back but i still believe that the vendors will you know use the audit as that primary tactic to get um, they're, they're lagging customers into the cloud. I, yeah. I, it's David, I totally agree with both Kylie and Matt and from an end user point of view it's it's not only with the audits that we're seeing though, it's whenever it comes to renewal of um, like a you know a device or user-based application that's perpetual you know they're giving you um, incentives to move to a SaaS model but we might not be ready for it this year so they just turn around and say well we're increasing the maintenance by like 30 odd percent Oh, it's a price increase because we're trying to phase out our perpetual licenses. And I think a, a lot of organisations that are going through audits as well are seeing that exactly what Matt said in his um, initial argument was that they don't seem to be focusing too much on the whole compliance piece. It's more, hey, how can we move you to our cloud services? Uh, how can we move you to our SaaS model? How can we get that rev uh, that regular revenue income stream from you guys? And it's just, yeah, it, it's a challenge though when you've you've got some um, some legacy systems out there and you, you physically haven't, it's going to take a while to move to these models. It's either, you know, don't do it and suck up and take the any increases on the perpetual models or 
you know, like you said, um, Kylie, try and push back and take a stand and say, look, we're still a customer. But that is a plan in, in the future, but we're not actually ready to do so at the moment. But at the end of the day, surely it all just comes down to money anyway for the vendor. You've, you've got a third option there too as well, David, on because uh, you, you, you don't have to take the support and maintenance option. You can go third party. So, you yeah. know, don't, don't forget yeah. to, to rattle that saber as well if, if people are getting arsy about, you know, hiking prices on support and maintenance. It's also worth just remembering what the vendor's motivation is here. And a lot of the vendors, especially the publicly traded ones, have made promises to their shareholders that, you know, percentages of their revenues, increasing percentage of their revenues will come from their cloud offerings. Right now, a lot of those vendors are struggling to meet those promises. So they'll do almost anything to get their customers into the cloud. One of those customers I mentioned in North America uh, that I visited just before Christmas, they took a cloud option with a vendor that they had existing legacy on-premises systems with, but kept their on-premises systems live because that was the cheapest option available to them. The vendor just wanted to sell the cloud license. It didn't really care whether they used the cloud license. It, it's a bizarre situation, but it's all being driven by, in my view, it's all being driven by what the vendors are promising to their shareholders and how they want to show the revenues on their books. Yeah, but you know what gets really interesting, Matt, is so so that's a that's an initial tactic from a new cloud vendor. They say, right, we we need to get this cloud revenue on our books. Let's let's just sell it no matter what. Uh, you know, we'll do whatever it takes to to sell those to sell those licenses to sell the option for that service. Microsoft's totally ahead of the game here. Microsoft has realised it's all very well selling cloud at a, at a massive discount um, it's still allowing companies to stay on their perpetual licenses but then you get in, you you struggled to to book your revenue so so you've got the potential revenue coming along but actually booking it as profit or as revenue that then can become profit you have to actually be able to demonstrate that those services are being consumed and that's why Microsoft, which has been in the cloud and, and been thinking about how to how to structure cloud services for a long time, is no longer um, loss leading its cloud services. And they will bend over backwards to make sure that you start consuming. Whereas some of the, the less mature cloud vendors, shall I say, um, even though they might still be, you know, big four vendors, massive software vendors, but they've not been in the cloud for the same length of time. They've not realized this problem yet. So that then, so so the the cheap consumption, uh, sorry, the cheap, the cheap, uh, the encouragement to move to the cloud is only going to be temporary. They they're really going to start prioritising consumption, I think, in 2018. I think um, Oracle is a good candidate for that, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if in the next two years there's a Enron size issue with um, Oracle in terms of revenue recognition and people actually using oh. their cloud. Um, and I think Julian, Julian, you described it as a, a, a is it upcoming meteorite about to hit Oracle? Is that the way you described it? Well, I think I think generally, as users, we we are renting something from somebody, and I think what gets lost in this whole process is that actually everybody who buys a software license or rents a software license or buys a subscription is a customer. And at the end of the day, all, all that seems to be happening at the moment is this, as everyone's described, this relentless drive to cloud. And I really think that revenue recognition is going to be an issue. We've already seen whistleblowing cases kicking up in the States around how 
revenues being recognised in certain vendors. Um, I think Kylie's totally right. If you with the vendors who are more mature, it's all about how do you make it work? How can how can we make sure that you're actually using it? Um, I also think you can see if you talk to vendors that the incentive model for their sales force is skewed entirely towards selling cloud. They're not interested in selling perpetual on-premise licenses to people um, because there's nothing personally in it for them. Um, I really believe that customers this year need to just, as Kylie says, stand up, push back and rather collectively say no, because after all, an order is about assuring yourself that checking that what I have bought is what I am using. It's not about checking what I have bought and what I'm, and I'm using said amount of licenses and then saying the answer is the cloud because that it doesn't really sit well with the description of audit and the audit provisions they have within the contracts that they're relying upon to actually instigate that review of what you're up to. So um, I'd quite like to see this year be the year where the customer's voice is louder than the voice of the vendor. Can I share a couple of anecdotes for those that are not aware um, of end users actually standing up against vendors in 2017? Because I don't think a lot of people have heard of these. Uh, one is there's a panel of, uh, I think it's 30-plus uh, French organizations that have uh, written to Oracle to say, we've had enough and you need to change your behavior. Otherwise, we're going to um, open up a can of whoop ass. Uh, and that's that's ongoing in uh, with a company called Sigref in, in France. And then there's a, a federation of Australian universities that have stood up to Adobe and that went to the Australian Competition Authority and the Australian Competition Authority, which is the Australian government, said, yes, this is legitimate because we want to get the, the taxpayer a good deal for Adobe. So um, it's starting to happen. And I think I'm, hope, I'm hoping that we'll see a lot more of it in 2018. Me too. And it certainly makes life more interesting when your client is quite happy to back you to stand there and say, no, thank you very much. I'm not that interested in having an audit at this moment in time because I know actually you're not really interested in my utilisation. You just want to vlog me your underdeveloped cloud product. Um, so I'm looking forward to a bit more. On, on East, East David, sorry to interrupt. On that one, though, you mentioned there about standing up to um, to vendors when they want to come in and audit. Um, I mean, I was speaking to Martin about this this week, is that from an end user point of view, I mean, what what's kind of the limit in terms of the number of active audits that are going on at the moment? Because, you know, when, when um, vendors have done their research, you know, the ITAM review and SMO, et cetera, some people are going through seven active audits at any one time. How are they actually meant to be a SAM manager or do any work if they've got seven external audits going on, all trying to push you to the cloud? I mean, is there a way that the, the end user community can kind of stand up and say, you know, I don't know, maybe limit it to five audits in the 12-month period or something like that, or is that kind of just dreamland? I think it's like one a year. I mean, I used to I used to run a software category and the software asset team, management team worked for me and we used to have a first-come, first-served basis and we would say, it's very nice you've written to ask me to do this, but unfortunately, I've already got three in the queue and one that I'm dealing with. You are now number four, take a ticket, wait in line, and when I've got time, I'll come to you. Because what's the point in killing yourself to do seven things really, you know, averagely? You might as well spend the time and the effort on each one individually. Because some teams, as we've discussed today, have a load of other stuff to be getting on with. You've got to go and sell yourselves, get involved in projects, work. You've got to, 
you know, do so much more than firefighting and reactive. And it's, it goes back to Kylie's point, getting out and governing rather than doing and just putting out fires from past mistakes. Yeah, I, I, I think um, audit management is a, a bit of an unsung art because it's so dependent upon you as a software asset manager, how bolsher you feel, how powerful you feel, how, how much sponsorship you have internally, how, what your relationship is with your senior managers. Uh, the different people push back on audits in different ways and, and uh, you know, I, I, think, I think probably we can be a lot firmer than people feel they can, particularly, um, you know, an audit is a, it's a legal activity in the sense that it's governed by the terms and conditions of the contract. Even just sending it off to the lawyers and then going back to the, to the vendor and saying, you know what, our lawyers are thinking about how we're going to respond to this can be an effective delaying tactic. Because the other thing is, Audits are actually really expensive for vendors. I mean, most vendors have it have the process down, um, and they will try and push you into the process that is most cost effective for them. But actually, audits are still really expensive. And the moment you go off piece um, and and say no, we've got to do this audit in a different way from the way you're expecting, their costs suddenly skyrocket as well. So you know they might have second thoughts about auditing you. Yeah, you know, if you're an easy mark, you'll 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 you know, be in the, in the eyesight of the gun. So that, that's a really interesting point of view from an end user's perspective because uh, you know, we, we have um, external audit processes and policies that have been agreed with senior management. Um, but then you know, when you push back on vendors, they quote loads of um, T's and C's at you and then threaten to email or message the CFO. Uh, you know, when that kind of happens, it's then doing the whole explaining pieces to say, yeah, you know, like you said, Gillian, we'll, we'll come to you eventually, but at the moment we've got multiple ones on. And at the end of the day, as I said, I was speaking to Martin, and his point was um, that an audit shouldn't make you stop doing your work and shouldn't be a huge disruptor to your, you know, your day-to-day -day stuff. But no, it's a good point, Kylie, about how how brave you're feeling uh, in pushing back on the auditor. But that's, um, yeah, that's really, really good food for thought. Yeah. Do you know what though? Um, I I have been in the scenario where you've had audit after audit after audit, and the first one was a nightmare. But but my but the procurement manager I was working for, the head of head of IT procurement, the CIO and the CFO, all learned what it actually meant to be audited, and as a result of that, every subsequent audit I had. 150% support from them, and if they and if the yep. vendor had said to me, "We're going to email the CFO, or we're going to we're going to email your head of risk, or we're going to email whoever, you know, the company secretary about this," I'd be like, "Fine," because I had I had identified the risk, I'd assessed it. You know, we're being audited by X. This is potentially the size of our of our exposure, this is what the audit's going to involve, this is the amount of resources that are likely to be required that are going to have to be pulled elsewhere. And and that had been escalated up to the appropriate parties. I, you know, a software asset manager's best friend is the risk register because that's where you track and manage these risks and communicate them upwards so that you have people at your back. Matt, if we could come to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I might be so bold, I would 
suggest perhaps an alternative word to brave. Not that I disagree with brave, but I, I would potentially replace it with confident. I've seen a number of organizations successfully push back on vendor audits, whether that's you know, to, to defend them completely or, or to deny them completely or whether to do it on their own terms in their own timescale. Those that succeed are typically the ones that know what they're doing. They've got good systems, good processes, and good teams in place. And they can go back to the vendor with confidence to say, we're pretty confident we know what our situation is. You're welcome to do an audit, but you're going to do it on our terms using our data. Um, that's where I've seen that, that sort of strategy work best. Now you have, uh, you have uh, terms and conditions from the vendor side, David, but you also have terms and conditions on your side, which uh, is most audit clauses will have, we have the right to audit, but there's also, we, we will not disrupt business. Um, and and if, as Kylie said, if somebody says um, they're going to email you FD, then let them email them. Because when it comes back down to you, you can say, I've only got finite resources. If you want me to do another audit, I need another headcount. Uh, or if you don't want me to do it, then I've, I've just got to crack on. Yeah, I must admit, I, I do. Audits are so stressful, don't get me wrong. They're absolutely horrendous. And that the word really need, is brave. When you're, I don't know about anybody else, but when you're in some of those confrontational situations, my heart will be thumping in my in my throat. And to have that braveness to actually say to the CIO or the CFO or the head of the legal department, this is how it is, this is my recommendation as to what we should do. It does take bravery. But I think it is about, it is also the calibre of you as a software asset manager and developing the management skills to allow you to effectively navigate those situations and don't worry if you're not compliant it's just a risk it's not your risk it's not your fault that you're not compliant you do need to communicate the risk you do need to tell your senior managers where the holes are and how those holes are uh, well, they're going to want to know how those holes are but you know what the financial risk is and then it needs to be dealt with by them and I've lost their job as a result of some of these things but you know you've got to you've got to get your your own senior managers on side sorry Martin what were you saying I'm saying this feels like counselling it's not your fault it's not your fault <laughs> <laughs> it's not you it's me <laughs> Project, the portfolio management team have, don't understand why you need to be sitting on the portfolio board. I have to doff my cap, guys, in the direction of a, of a former mentor of mine called Pete Thomas, uh, back in the, the good old days at Fast. And he, he always said, if you get a contract, um, he said what the lawyers do, what they like to do is get out their, um, their highlighter pen and they highlight every adjective in the uh, in the contract, particularly around the audit terms. So things like reasonable, um, you know, that that's the biggest word in any audit clause is if it's not reasonable to do an audit, don't do it and cite that reason as to why it's not reasonable. And and possibly the best person to speak to about this, um, have that chat with Danny Begg sometime. He's a, he's a past master at it. I'm conscious of time, so if we could make this the last topic, and I'd like that to make that the the, the topic of indirect access. Um, we did some articles and news pieces around Diageo and AB InBev, which were two companies that SAP, in their wisdom, uh, decided to sue their customers. Um, very hot topics for 2017. 
Um, lots of people interested in the topic. And, and to quote one end user, the, the, the threat of the risk spread like wildfire amongst their senior management team. Um, so, Rory, if I could come to you first, indirect licensing in 2017, do you think, I think you said, is it a flash in the pan or is it here to stay? What's your views on that for 2018? Um, yeah, I, I think it's... Um it, it's too much of a bright light for the software vendors to ignore, I think, uh, particularly based on the um, the initial publicity that surrounded the court case from uh, SAP and Diageo. So I think we'll definitely we'll definitely see more of it. But if you look to, I think, at the timeline that the SAP engaged with, it was possibly something that was done as a last resort because I think it was it was something like five or six years before it actually got to a decision. From initial discovery to yes, we're going to follow this through. So, I, I I don't think we're going to be seeing headlines for this every other week, but I I think it's going to be a choice um, a choice tactic of uh, of preference I think for the major software vendors. I love it. I I just think it's such a gift, and I tell it as a story to people, and you just see the look of horror on their face. The thing about this case that I find that is, is, you know, and I'm not an SAP person at all, um, but it's just fantastic because the original problem was back in 2004 and it's a classic case of had there been a bit of SAM governance in place around that solutions design, that risk might have been flagged up and conversations might have been had with SAP in 2004 and the outcome may have been very different. Then it was discovered 10 years later in 2014 and then it took another three years to get to court and get a decision i mean it really does demonstrate the long timelines that we're talking about and the dramatic consequences that awesome governance can have within an organization yeah and it's it's weird too i think this particular case um highlights too this whole idea of of aligning sam to it services stroke itil again if you go down the itil route with your it services um if if that situation had arisen where somebody said i've got this good idea why don't we plug salesforce into sap the the recognition might have come out of the situation that actually hang on we're turning our erp system into a cost in into um um, you, you know, an e-commerce website, what consequences does that actually have? Um, so you could see it from a you could see it from a very high level from a business management perspective and, and senior businessmen could have sort of plugged into that. But clearly they just sort of wrote roughshod over the thing and said, well, yeah, it can speed through uh, drinks ordering. Why wouldn't we do it? Well, I think that fits very nicely, Mark, um, Rory, with the uh, this whole idea of this disruption gap, which you maybe have heard me talk about before, which is the increasing shift of the IT spending power away from IT to the business. And then the, the second part of your statement there is perhaps the one that's most pertinent to this, which is why wouldn't we do it? It makes us you know, able to recognize more revenues more quickly, to ship more product more quickly, to access customer data more quickly. The business is increasingly driving IT decisions and not necessarily thinking about some of the complex IT effects that are going to happen further down the line. And I think SAP, 
they really got their fingers burned on the publicity with Diageo and AB InBev. They didn't really come out of it very well. So we've kind of seen them go underground in the second half of 2017. I still believe that indirect access is a big deal for those guys, but they're doing everything they can to keep it out of the media. Uh, and it kind of relates to the, the previous topic we were talking about on software auditing. But I also think that as we move to a world of uh, the Internet of Things, of increasing mobility, more and more vendors other than SAP will have their software used in ways that they did not foresee when they brought that software to market and when they defined the licensing schemes that still prevail for those applications or systems. And I think that they are in catch-up mode themselves. They're understanding how their software is being exploited in new ways, and they are working out frantically how to monetize that. Right now, we call it indirect access. Through 2018, we may come up with a new name for it, but it, essentially, it's still software being used by software that aren't, you know, or software being used by systems that are non-human, if you like. And I think we're only going to see that increase. Okay, so to wrap to wrap things up, thank you very much for joining the podcast. To wrap to close the podcast, uh, I'd like to know what your plans are for 2018. So, Matt, if we could come to you first. Yeah, thanks, Martin, and thanks for the uh, invite onto today's call. I think for me, really, it's to get uh, much much closer to our customers as we go through 2018. One of the things I've learned in the last couple of months is that we've got some seriously clever customers using our software in ways that we didn't envision when we brought it to market. So we need to learn from that and then we will be better placed to help them really take charge of their technology assets through 2018. I'll go next then. So uh, thanks, thanks very much, Martin, for the time today. I think I have a couple of goals. Um, uh, as it is January and it's 2018, definitely to get fitter and to work on my inner six pack. Um, but also, I, I, I'm being ambitious here. I want to come out with a product that will actually um, uh, be considered for innovation of the year at the next ITEM Review Awards. Gutsy, gutsy. Tell more. What, what's all this about then? Is it developed yet? Uh, no, no, it's it's bouncing around in my head at the moment. So and um, and it's it's need to know right now. So um, I, I'll just say, stay tuned. Okay, cool. Julian. Um. So my goal for 2018 is to keep helping um, Sinega's customers spend the appropriate amount of money on the appropriate number of licenses, whether they're deploying those on premise or in the cloud, um, and personally a bit like Rory I'd like to get fitter but that's probably not going to happen as I like chocolate and biscuits far too much so I think my goal for this year is to help one of my children actually learn to ride their bicycle <laughs> which just leaves Kylie uh, sorry Dave we've got Kylie and David so yeah thank you as everyone said Mark thank you very much for the invite greatly appreciated my goals for this year is number one to learn how to be a dad to my perfect little boy and to teach him um, about software asset management. He can't talk yet, but we'll get there. Um, and professionally wise, it's just to continue on the groundwork that we built here last year, uh, to continue to save money. Um, we've got snow, so rolling that out uh, globally, but also as well to focus on the end user experience, improving how we deliver software, improving our processes, and just, you know, what do you call them, the big hairy goals? We've got a couple of those this year, Martin, that I'm really hopeful and excited that we're going to achieve. So, yep. Thank you again. Really can interesting I, can podcast. Because um, 
David used to work at Snow, and having worked at Snow and then chosen to deploy Snow, I think is the best um, recommendation you can get. Um, kudos to Snow for that. Other SAM tools are available. Um, and finally, uh, Kylie. So I guess my goals this year are mainly professional. I'd like to continue helping uh, clients think through how they need to do the SAM. Um, but also, actually, it's been a while since I've done a proper strategic sourcing negotiation. So it, it would be nice to help a client do a nice meaty negotiation with Microsoft or Oracle sometime this year because I do enjoy negotiations as well. And you can find Kylie on LinkedIn or drop us a note and we can connect you. Uh, with that, thank you very much, guys. Um, thank you very much for your time and look forward to working with you throughout 2018.